Hello, everybody. Welcome back to a brand new episode of The Casual Grimlist. As always, I'm your host, Simon Wamsey, one of my writers in this case, Matthew. Thank you, Matt, has written me a script, The Masquerade of Ron Ferrell, The Vampire Clan Murders. Why are we drinking each other's blood? <laughs> why, are, why are people like this? Oh, my God. Okay, look, the format of the show, if you're new here, I've never read this before. Matt's written it for me. I'm going to read it. We're going to explore it together, dear listener or viewer, if you're on YouTube. Hello there. Yes, this show also goes out on YouTube. You're welcome. If you want to look at my face. <laughs> and some graphics that uh, our wonderful editor adds. Let's jump into it, shall we? Simon, dearest audience, I bid you welcome. Let's talk about vampires. From the legitimate fear of people in the past that their loved ones might rise from the grave to suck their blood, to the beloved icons of the modern day, the Nosferatu have had quite the roller coaster with their reputation. Yeah, this is crazy in the past. Like, people thought vampires were real. <laughs> because it was the past. I'm sure there's some people who think vampires are real today who are like super edgy teenagers or something. <laughs> you guys watch that Buffy the Vampire Slayer show when you were kids? Or like when you were adults? I don't know. I always assume everyone's the same age as me. And there's probably lots of people who are younger than me being like, the what? <laughs> Who's the Slayer? And I've always, like, I tend to rag on fantasy. Like, I'm not a big fantasy watcher. Like, don't, didn't like Game of Thrones. People are always like, Simon, you gotta get into Game of Thrones. It's so good. And it's not about the fantasy, it's about the politics. I watched like two episodes. And the first one twice, desperately trying to get into it because everyone told me I'd love it. And it's just, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't like Lord of the Rings. I don't like fantasy. Don't tell me about hobbits. But I did like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the, uh, the old librarian. What was his name? Was his name Giles or am I imagining that? <laughs> I had a mate called Giles. It's such an old man's name. <laughs> um... What are we talking about? Ah, oh, yes, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm sorry, we'll get into today's episode. Don't worry, it's short. It's only 11 pages. I think it's supposed to go as a Halloween special, whether that's actually happened because of the scheduling of these shows. Who knows? Um, have you guys seen the, the remake of Buffy the Vampire Slayer where they switch it into like 16 by 9 widescreen and also like uh, convert it to HD or whatever? It's terrible. <laughs> Whoever did that did a lousy job because it's like you can't just like look at the net the film negatives, right? Because I assume it was shot on film, which is why they could remaster it. And then they're just like, oh, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, there was some camera and there was some lighting equipment visible on the left of that shot. We'll just leave that in. There's a there's a light man there. <laughs> it's terrible. It's, it's for sure uh, for showing all over the place. And then they had these scenes that were shot at night, right? And they were obviously shot in the day. And for the remake, they just seem to have not bothered remastering the lighting. So it's clearly daytime, even though it's like she's asleep in bed. And there's light streaming in the window. Whereas in the original episode, they'd obviously dealt with that. Oh, okay, let's move on from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. None of you are here for 90s television. Early 2000s television? When was Buffy the Vampire Slayer? These days, vampires are seen as fun villains and even allies in all sorts of mediums, from books to movies to TV shows to video games, from the many adaptations of Dracula to True Blood to The Lost Boys. True Blood was another show that I tried to get into, because I'm like, I like vampires, let me try and get into True Blood. And I think I watched like half a season of that and then just dropped off. And it's a show, it looks like very well made, there's lots of seasons. This is a show that I should really be able to get into. And I'm like, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't get into it. So the Lost Boys, never heard of the Lost Boys, and the unholy abomination that is Twilight. The creatures of the night are mostly looked at with love and respect. Are they, though? They were definitely the bad guys in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. They're often the bad guys. And in, in the Twilight movies, they're definitely the bad guys. It's like that Edward guy is like a thousand years old, and he's dating a 15-year-old. <laughs> Edward, it's fucking weird! Edward, you sicko! You better hold on tight, spider monkey. Like, I'm 36, and I'd, str like, I'd struggle to talk to, like, a 20-year-old about shit. 
Like the idea of talking to 20 year old Simon would be like, what, what are we going to talk about? We have very, very different lives. And like the idea of being a thousand years old and having to talk to like a 15 year old, you'd be like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> but I've seen, I've seen one of the Twilight movies. I've only seen the second Twilight movie. And for some reason, I saw it in the cinema. I've brought this up before. I still haven't worked out why on earth I went to see only the second Twilight movie. Can't figure it out. It was fucking awful. There are even people today who claim to be real undead vampires, while some of them are just edgelords. <laughs> yes, I want to look badass and cool. You don't. There are some that actually take it a step further. Hell, I'll never forget flipping through the channels on TV and coming across a show where it showed a couple who lived as vampires, going so far as to actually drink each other's blood. That's really dangerous. You can get, like, iron overload and stuff like that. That's not healthy. Don't be drinking other people's blood. It's f***ing weird. Yes, that is a real thing. Yes, it's as gross as it sounds. And it can result in the person developing hemochromatomus. Oh, for God's sake. Hemochromatosis, which can result in heart and liver failure and turn you into one of the very dead. <laughs> yeah, not living dead, just very dead. Don't drink people's blood. If you really have a craving for blood, have some blood pudding and be done with it. However, there are times when the term vampire isn't used with such reverence, from Richard Chase to Fritz Armand to Wayne Bowden to Satomu Miyazaki. I have no idea who any of these people are. There have been a number of evil men who were slapped with the label of vampire. We even covered the most infamous of the lot when we went over the crimes of the vampire of Dusseldorf, Peter Curtin. However, those are the more well-known ones. And there's one case that doesn't get as much attention. It's the 1990s and the grunge and edgelord era is in full force. Yeah, edgelord. Like, <laughs> I'm so happy that I discovered the word edgelord because there was never really a good word for it before. And it's like, look, every teenager is a little bit edgy. But like, there are definitely people who take it too far. And it's like, you just like get into one subculture way too deep. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a witch. Why you? I'm a skateboarder. It's like, okay, I was never any of these things. And maybe it's just because I'm boring, but I like, I always dressed like a normal person. I didn't like wear anything. I didn't get into any like super weird hobbies. I didn't drink anyone's blood. I can't do a kickflip for sh Like, I don't know, never got into any of those scenes. <laughs> it's just a bit of a loser. In that time, a group of damaged people got together due to their shared love of a specific role-playing game. Led by a young man, even more broken than the rest of them, the members of this coven of would-be vampires went on to commit a brutal crime that sent shivers down the spines of everyone in the town of Eustace, Florida. So, everyone, with the grinning of the jack-o'-lanterns guiding our way. <laughs> I really hope this goes out of Halloween, otherwise these references are going to be pointless. It's very hard to schedule things on time. Like, we we record episodes months in it. I'm recording this in August. <laughs> just to get, Not even late August. It's the 18th of August today. September, October. Two and a bit months. <laughs> Let's see. I'm probably going to be seeing this in October and being like, oh, it's cold. <laughs> Whereas, I'm recording this. Hello, future Simon. It's like 30-something degrees outside, and it's way too hot. So enjoy that nice October weather. Let's journey together and explore the darkness that is the vampire cult. A lost and lonely girl. Let's start this dark tale by speaking about the girl and her family at the heart of this insanity. Heather Wendorf was born in Eustace, Florida to parents Richard and Naomi Ruth Wendorf. Heather had an older sister named Jennifer, and from all reports, they were a rather regular family. Richard and Ruth loved their daughters, though they seemed to dote on Jennifer a little bit more. Jennifer was a great student, a cheerleader, a runner-up for the title of Mrs. Eustace. Surely that's Miss Eustace, like, as in like a beauty pageant. 
Burning. Regular families shouldn't be entering their kids into beauty pageants. That's weird. Beauty pageants are weird. No one can tell me different. Uh, for adults, sure, mate, it's, it's just still a bit weird. So I meant children's beauty pageants. Like, how old are you? What's her name? Heather. Jennifer. Jennifer. How old are you, Jennifer, doing these like pageants? It's weird. It's super weird. She was more reserved, artsy, and she preferred to keep herself to herself, seeming to hold no ill will towards her beloved sister or her parents. Now her parents were supportive of her creativity, and they understood that sometimes artistic minds need room to grow, so initially they let her do her own thing. Hell, they were already having issues with Jennifer, who started cutting classes and had a 21-year-old boyfriend that they didn't approve of in the slightest. Oh my god, I don't want to do this. I got like a three-year-old daughter, and at some point I know she's going to be a teenager. If she has a 21-year-old boyfriend when she's like 18, 17, 18, what else? I was going, oh, for fuck's sake. And what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you, 21-year-old who has a teenage girlfriend? What's wrong with you? There's plenty of 21-year-old girls out there, mate. <laughs> I'm already upset about this. This is a fictional future that I don't live in yet. <laughs> you imagine when it actually happens to me, I'll be like, what the f***? It got to a point where her boyfriend, Tony, got smashed out of his gourd and wrecked Jennifer's brand new satin, only infuriating her parents more and leading Ruth to taking a position in the office of their high school in order to keep an eye on her two girls. However, while Ruth and Richard's attention was mostly trained on Jennifer and her issues, they quickly began to notice a visible change in Heather too. Now 15, she had become… what was the, what was the age difference? I'm trying to work out what the age difference between this 21-year-old. Let's say, don't know, what was the difference? Let's just say there's a two-year difference. So she's 17 and he's 21. Stop it. Weirdo. Now 15, she had become more withdrawn and her fashion had taken a turn. She began dressing in all black, was covered in belts and chains. Her shirts sported odd and eccentric designs and she would dye her hair different colors, such as bright red or purple. Now that just sounds like textbook goth kid to me, nothing to be worried about, right? Well, normally, yes, but when Ruth found an inverted cross hanging on Heather's bedroom wall, a Barbie doll with a noose around its neck and its parts rearranged and dead flowers placed all over her room, that's when she started to have an issue with Heather's creativity. I'd still be like, Heather's just being an edge little edge lo edge lady. <laughs> like hanging the cross eyes out is like, oh look at you, look at you. Do you want attention? Are you after attention? Is that what you're after? Yes, that's what you're after. Ruth even walked in on Heather, cutting herself with a razor, and that is my line. And that only caused her to worry more about her daughter. I'd be like, yeah, okay, dye your hair, do the weird cross thing. Don't fing cut yourself. You'll go to a psychiatrist so fast. You see, Ruth didn't blame just Heather for this dark transition in her life. Oh no, Ruth knew that Heather's new taste in fashion could be laid at the feet of one person, someone she had met at school, a fellow student, a boy by the name of Roderick, or Rod Ferrell. A goth kid himself, Rod was always seen as a weirdo, a creep, a loner. Dressed in dark clothes with weird symbols and graphics, pale with long dark hair, he was the very definition of an edgelord teen. God, I love that word. Why do I love that word so much? He and Heather had gotten close while in school and they'd bonded over their love of the arts and the occult. She began to emulate his style and way of thinking. He had used his surprisingly strong personality to keep her enthralled by him and his ways. <laughs> Even he sounds like a little mini cult leader, doesn't he? Even when he was moved for a time back to his birthplace of Murray, Kentucky, she kept in contact with him with constant phone calls that racked up enormous phone bills, much to her parents' irritation. I asked the past. They'd be like, how long are you on the phone? Not long. <laughs> Because they'd, they'd count it by the minutes. Okay, Grandpa, we'll be sure to keep that in mind. Charisma can be a hell of a thing, especially when paired with a warped mind. Warped minds? You might be thinking, well, Matt, that sounds a bit harsh. He just seems like an edgy goth teen looking for a friend. Yeah, so far, so that's so, so gothy. That's all I think. 
And normally I'd say you're correct. Hell, I've had friends and even family members who have gone through goth phases during their high school years and it was all fairly harmless. Except this wasn't what this was. You see, Rod Ferrell, as you could probably tell from the title of this episode, wasn't just a regular teen with a dark fashion sense. There was a darkness to him. One that he welcomed with open arms. One night, Heather was hanging out with Rod, and they found themselves strolling through a local graveyard. <laughs> as you do. How edgy and goth of you, Rod. <laughs> as they walked, Rod, with all the seriousness in the world, looked at her in the eye and said, Lest mortals destroy themselves with their own hate and greed, I have been cast on this land. I am the devil's child, walking with earthly feet. What if you and I were deemed rulers of the world? Do you think you would fit my purposes? I'm not mortal. Yeah, sure, Roderick. And I'm Christopher Lee. Roderick. 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 Stop trying so hard. Stop being such an edgelord. Good lord. Was this just an edgy teenager speaking nonsense? Initially, I'll be like, yes. But I get the feeling the answer's gonna be no. I mean, obviously it's all made up, but it's gonna be like, yeah, now I'm gonna remove your legs. <laughs> or something weird. Not likely, because it was around this time that Rod Ferrell had started gathering a small group of followers around him, a group who worshipped him, a group that loved him, a group that hung on his every word and believed in all the things he did. The reason? Because he believed he was a 500-year-old vampire. He also sounds incredibly charismatic. The people who managed to achieve this, where it's just like they have people following them and it's just like friends with them for no reason, even though they seem to be weird. And it's just like, uh, uh, are people born with this or do they read some book? <laughs> like, what's that famous book? How to Win Friends and Influence People. Boom. There's another book called like How to Hate People and Make Them Hate You or something. It just came to my mind. It was confusing me about the title of the book. Um, so they read this book and then they become like cult leaders or whatever. Or are they just born with it? Like just born with the ability to be super charismatic. <laughs> I wish I had that. I'd use it for evil. This fall, learn from the best to become your best with today's sponsor masterclass from leadership to effective communication to cooking. It's all there. Whether you're watching Masterclass on TV, listening in audio mode in the app or on their site, the quality speaks for itself. It's like Masterclass are instructors. They're your own personal mentors. And then they can help you reach the next level. How much would it cost to take a one-on-one -on -one class from the world's best easily? Hundreds to thousands of dollars from the world's best. I think it's more like, it's, it's not on the ad read here, but... If you like want to sit down with Gordon Ramsay for an hour, it's going to cost you a bloody fortune. With Masterclass, annual membership is just $10 a month. Membership starts at $120 a year for unlimited access to one-on-one -on -one classes with all 180-plus Masterclass instructors. Learn how to negotiate a pay rise with Chris Voss or manage your relationship with Esther Perel. Boost your confidence and find practical takeaways that you can apply to your life and to your work. And if you own a business or you're a team leader, use Masterclass to empower and create future-ready employees and leaders. And right now, you guys can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash casual. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash casual. Masterclass.com slash casual. And now back to today's episode. The Boy from the Shadows Funnily enough, Roderick Justin Ferrell's birth certificate indicated that he was born on March the 28th, 1980 in Murray, Kentucky, a few years off the mark of being 500 if you ask me. His mother, Sandra Gibson, had met his father Rick while in high school and became pregnant after they'd been dating for about a year and a half. <laughs> Rod's like, shut up, mum! I'm an immortal vampire! You didn't birth me, mum! Oh, Ricky, stop it! What's his name, sorry? Oh, Roddo, stop being such an edge lord! <laughs> I don't know why I, I do a British accent. They're from Kentucky. 
<laughs> yeah! They did the right thing and got married, but divorced shortly after Rod was born, leaving Rod with almost no memories of his father. Not the greatest start, and sadly, it didn't get much better. Children, especially in their early years, need stability, and Rod's early years were anything but stable. As Rod was growing up, Sondra had a number of romantic relationships, none of which lasted long, and she had a terrible time holding down a job, going from occupation to occupation frequently, and even spent time as both an exotic dancer and a sex worker. They constantly moved from place to place, and even lived with her parents at one point. According to Aphrodite Jones, that's a name and a half, isn't it? Author of The Embrace, A True Vampire Story, she stated that even though they allowed her and Rod to live with them, Sandra was not a fan of her parents, going so far as to tell Rod that he did not need to listen to them at all. According to Jones, to quote, To anyone who would listen, she described her parents as mentally and emotionally abusive types, insisting they were strict Pentecostal fundamentalists who made her existence a living hell. Quote ends. Sadly, Sandra wasn't too far off the mark, since Rod would later claim that he was sexually assaulted by his grandfather, Harold Gibson, on numerous occasions. Jesus. Sonia and her sister, Lizetta Cruz, backed up his story and claimed that they were also victims, yet Harold was never charged. How about, how about the fucking predator gets charged? There's three people being like, yeah, yeah, no, he's a predator. He's a P-word. <laughs> and they're just like, I guess so. Ah, what the fuck? <laughs> Ah yes, rule number two, broken in no time once more. As childhood, I don't remember what rule two is. Let me get the dictionary. Brand new crispy one. <laughs> this is the uh, the notebook that I got made. I went through such a hassle to get this beautiful notebook made. And then I was like, I think I sold like 500 of them or something. And I've got like 100 samples here that I've given most away now. Uh, but just distribution of this is such a nightmare that I just couldn't do it. I was like, no, what? Like everyone does like Teespring and stuff like that, which I do as well. And the, the notebooks were just not good enough through there. I thought they were just kind of like a bit crap. Offense, Teespring, I'm sorry. I know you do great jobs with the t-shirts. But I was like, I'm going to do this myself. That was a nightmare. <laughs> it was a nightmare. I'm not doing it again. Uh, rule number two, don't tell other people about your crimes. There we go. It's beautiful though. Look at this notebook. It's like embossed. It's made out of leather. And I was selling these for like 15 bucks, which feels like, I don't know, you can't get nice notebooks like this for 15 bucks, let alone like branded ones with like rules inside. But yeah, distribution was a nightmare. I'm sorry. And at $15, I wasn't exactly making much money. It was all done with shipping and shit. It was really depressing. I spent so long on it. They sold out in a day and everyone's like haranguing me for more. Like, Simon, when are more notebooks coming? I've addressed this. Please stop. For bad enough as it is. His childhood continued at Turbulent Path as he entered high school and eventually he'd meet Heather Wendorf. The two bonded over their loneliness and artistic interests. But Rod didn't just want a friend. He wanted someone who loved and needed him, and that's exactly what Heather became. It sounds like he can get this very easily because he's like a charisma god. Eventually, though, Sondra had enough of her father's nonsense and she uproots and moved her and Rod to Murphy, Kentucky, forcing him to leave Heather behind. The change of scenery didn't help the home situation for either Rod or Sondra, though, since it, I'm going to definitely call her Sondra at some point because, oh, okay, Sally, sadly, so Sondra is her first name. Who's called Sondra? Is that just people who don't want to call their kids Sandra? During this time and the months that followed, Rod started taking drugs, namely PCP, LSD, and heroin. Holy sh! my dude. It's like, nah, yeah, he smoked a bit of weed and took some ecstasy on the weekends. No, no, no. He got into like black tar heroin, PCP, and LSD. Because that's exactly what a lonely weirdo needs. Am I right? While on drugs, Rod became angry and violent. Probably not on heroin. <laughs> 
I'm guessing that's more to do with the PCP. And he would take out his frustrations on his own mother. Now, before we feel too sorry for her, she returned the violence in kind, perhaps even more so. She grabbed him by the hair and ripped it out in clumps. She trashed his room on a regular basis, and she hurled verbal abuse at him every single day, going so far as to say that Rod had ruined her life and accused him of taking her baby away, perhaps venting her disgust and disappointment at how Rod had turned out as if she didn't play a huge part in it. Yeah, 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 look, look, however your kids turn out, you had something to do with that. <laughs> Like in 20 years, people will be like, Simon Whistler, father of famed serial killers. Like, no, I didn't mean it. He's a natural psychopath. <laughs> My son will probably be watching this in 20 years and be like, what the f***, dad? Why would you say this? I was one. <laughs> He does love destroying my other kids. Like she'll make like a big tower out of it. You could, do you guys know magnetiles? Other parents, they're amazing. And my first kid, who's three, will make like a big tower, and then the kid who's one will just like smash it down. I mean, like, why'd you do that? He's like, ah, <laughs> ah, oh god. <laughs> Once again, rule number two, folks. We're a broken record on this channel, but it bears repeating nonetheless. Don't f up your kids. Wait. Don't write down your crimes. Don't tell other people about your crimes. Don't f up your kids. Where is this? <laughs> I like that one. Don't drive a red sports car. <laughs> if you're making a secret identity, don't go for something interesting. <laughs> These are really good. Uh, but look, don't f up your kids is like not even, it's like, it's not even in the first 30. <laughs> Destroying evidence is pretty smart. Clean up after your crimes. <laughs> we come up with. <laughs> After enrolling at Calloway High School, Rod managed to rekindle some of his old relationships that he'd made when he was younger, including one with Howard Scott Anderson. Keep that name in mind, it will be very important soon. One person that became very important to him, and one that arguably was the spark that stoked the fire within him even more, was Jaden Stephen Murphy. The two bonded over their love of the occult, and Murphy also introduced Rod to a game that he loved very much, one that Rod would fall in love with, and that would inspire him in his real life moving forward. Vampire the Masquerade. Visago. Now, I'm sure that you've already asked the important question. Simon, what the hell is Vampire the Masquerade? I am wondering. I wonder if this is something like Magic the Gathering. It's like something I'm vaguely aware of, but have no idea how it works. I know Kevin, another writer on this channel, is very into it. He goes to like Magic the Gathering festivals, tournaments, events, something like that but I still don't know what it is. I guess this is different, though. Well, the short answer is that it's a tabletop role-playing game. Is that what Magic the Gathering is? Wait, no, that's Dungeons & Dragons, isn't it? There's Dungeon that's a tabletop role-playing game. I don't know any of these. I, I, I like board games. I like Risk. I like, there's a great game called Pandemic. Before I had kids, my wife and I played board games all the time. And now I don't think we've played board games in three years. <laughs> Like, no time for it. Well, the short answer is a tabletop role-playing game where a group of friends gather either in real life or online these days and play at being vampires in a fictitious world controlled by the GM, or Game Master. There are different types of vampires, different sects and clans, each with different powers and abilities. And the choice of the players affects the world of the game that they're playing in. Well... I've never played myself. I know that in most cases, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the game itself. Most people understand it's simply a game where you pretend to be someone else for a few hours and have fun with your friends. For Rod, though, this was a door that would open up a brand new world for him. Yeah, I, this has been discounted, right? The idea that it's like, oh, yeah, well, that guy went on a school shooting. He played lots of GTA. And I'm like, yeah, 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 that's the problem. As I always say, number of civilians I've killed in GTA, thousands. Number of people I've killed in real life, fucking zero. <laughs> Allegedly. No, I haven't killed anyone. <laughs> Jesus, why would you say that, Simon? 
You see, Murphy and those that he played not only roleplay as vampires, they also lived a vampiric lifestyle as well, as if the game was real life. This little clan had their own belief systems, as well as their own rules on how to live as a vampire. They didn't believe in taking lives, whether it be human or animal, and while they claimed to crave blood, they never went so far as to hurt others outside of their circle. Slight trigger warning here. In order to enjoy the experience of consuming blood, Murphy and his circle engaged in consensual bloodletting. We don't need a trigger warning for that, do we? You're listening to a true crime show! What did you come here expecting? King rainbows and butterflies? As my, my kids. Sorry, I know we're talking about like people drinking each other's blood, but my kids come up so much in today's episode. I, I now ask like every morning, like to my kid, did you have any nice dreams? And she always says, no matter what, I dreamt about rainbows and butterflies and princesses and lollipops. And it's like, oh, okay. We. Uh, oui. We don't do that here. For those who don't know what bloodletting is, basically they took a sharp object such as a razor blade and they'd voluntarily cut themselves so that others in the group could drink a small dose of their blood. Oh, okay, self-harm. I get why we had the trigger warning now. Sorry, but this is a true crime show. The trigger warning's in the bloody title. True crime, the casual criminalist. What, again, what did you come here expecting? They wouldn't cut deep enough for it to ever be too painful or life-threatening. It was simply about the experience, the euphoria of being a true vampire. So, how did Rod feel about all of this? Well, he dove right into the vampiric practices, having truly fallen in love with the lifestyle. It was in January 1996 when Murphy, after becoming friends with Rod, invited him to cross over. He accepted instantly, and that night the two of them went to a local cemetery, cut themselves with razors, and drank each other's blood. If the thought of that made your stomach twist, congratulations, you're a normal person. It doesn't, I just think it's weird. I'm just like, okay. I'm an edgelord, just chill. It's like, this is pointless. What, you think you're going to turn each other into vampires and live forever? No, no, you're not. You're just going to die like a regular-ass person. After this, though, Rod became more and more unhinged throughout the year, as if this was the excuse his fragile mind needed to act out his darker desires. Now Murphy and his little group already stuck out like a bloody thumb in the very conservative Christian town, but as soon as Rod started acting out, it only drew more eyeballs to their activities. So... How exactly did Rod start acting out? Why, by checking off another box on our serial killer checklist. Soon after the whole crossing over business, Rod started killing animals as if there was no tomorrow. Murphy himself stated he witnessed Rod killing a kitten by throwing it against a tree for scratching him. Soon after, the bodies of dogs and puppies started turning up mutilated in the back of Calloway County Humane Society building, and the police were called in to investigate. Of course, the pale, long-haired vampire creep was questioned about it. Like, who should we question? That guy! And he denied any involvement. All the while, his normal life just kept going further and further down the tubes. This included him getting suspended from school for his erratic behavior and skipping classes. And Sandra filed a beyond parental control report against him, stating that he threatened to kill her multiple times and that he was a member of a satanic cult. Not exactly accurate, but not too far off either. Also, quite ironic, since Sandra had also a love of vampiric culture and had actually asked Rod Delba cross over, much like he had pot meat kettle. Wait, wait, wait. I just had to go back and check that because I couldn't believe what I was reading. That's his mum. His mum's like, Edgelord, son, can you help me cross over? I want to be a vampire too. What the f***'s wrong with you, Sandra? No wonder your kid's f***ed up. 
Things only got worse from there. After all the animal killing and his erratic and violent behavior, Murphy had had enough. He began distancing himself from Rod before kicking him out of his vampire clan altogether, saying that Rod simply didn't respect their way of life. When explaining his decision, Murphy stated that Rod's problem was that he didn't listen to the laws. I accepted him into my heart as well as my life. I gave him the gift of the embrace, but he didn't understand it. He didn't respect life. You're supposed to respect your sire, but he would constantly break our laws. A valid decision, with a valid reason, but that probably wasn't the only one as Sondra developed a sickening infatuation with Jamie Murphy, Jaden's 14-year-old brother. Sondra is the mum, right? I, like, what? Roderick Justin's Farrell birth, just going back. Birth certificate indicated that he was born on March the 28th, 1980 in Murray, Kentucky, a few years off the mark of being 500. His mother, Sondra Gibson, had met his father, Rick, while in high school. What the f***'s wrong with you, Sondra? 14? <laughs> Her infatuation became an obsession since she wanted him to help her become a vampire, and she even started writing letters to him, ones that were, let's just say, not exactly PG and definitely not appropriate for a 14-year-old boy. Jaden and Jamie's mother eventually found the letters and pressed charges against Sandra. Good. And it was soon found out that Sandra put together a shrine to Jamie in her house, complete with pictures, candles, and incense. What the f***? <laughs> to quote the section of the letters, I long to be near you for your embrace. Yes, Jamie, to become a vampire, a part of the family, immortal, and truly yours forever. Can you say nasty? Yes, I can. Fucking nasty sh. It didn't take Rod long to bounce back. If he couldn't be a part of Murphy's group, he simply would create his own, and it already got some folks in mind. As mentioned before, 16-year-old Howard Scott Anderson was an old childhood friend of Rod's and one of the only real friends that he ever had. Much like Rod, he was into the whole goth edgelord lifestyle, so it wasn't hard for him to be convinced to join Rod's clan. He then managed to wrangle in two more unfortunate people, those being the 19-year-old Dana Cooper and 16-year-old Charity Kesey, who Rod had actually been romantically involved with at the time. Say what you want about vampires, they can be a charming lot. So yes, this group of loners and outcasts got together, and after crossing over, they would hang out, play Vampire the Masquerade, talk sh about their lives, and drink each other's blood after cutting themselves ad nauseum. And the more they met, more Rod fell deeper and deeper into his own delusion, claiming to be a 500-year-old vampire by the name of Asago. How did he come up with this nonsense name? Why? Because it was the name of his character in the game, of course. The title of this chapter probably makes sense now. But Matt... I hear you saying. So far, we've learned about Rod, and how he became what he did. But what about Heather? What about her family? I don't remember. There's too many characters. Remind me. Well, sadly, it's time we revisit them, and we get to the point where we understand why we're talking about this on a true crime show. Oh yeah, wait, there's got to be killing, right? <laughs> Let's go! I don't know why I said that like that. These people are horrible. It's not like they're just going to kill themselves or something. They're going to kill other people. The Bloody Night The entire time that Rod was in Kentucky, he never once broke off contact with Heather. They called each other regularly and were on the phone for hours, much to her parents' annoyance. It wasn't long before Rod made his return to Florida, reuniting with Heather almost immediately. He didn't come alone, though, as along with Rod came Howard, Charity, and Dana, since they went everywhere he did. It didn't take long before Rod took Heather to a local cemetery and made the proposal to convert her into his little clan. She accepted and was crossed over then and there, therefore becoming a vampire. In describing her feelings for him at the time and the utter lunacy, his grip has on her, Heather recounted to quote, I didn't see it as anything wrong. It was just like I was in human form, just a regular person, and Rod came over and embraced me. It felt good, really. I embraced him back, and then things started changing. I went with him into the black depth. We crawled under his little stairway, and then I started a flying dream. It was pitch black. 
and I could see I was flying low to the ground, and I could feel wings flapping. I was flying down this street, in this suburban neighborhood, and following this creature. It was Rod, and his color was absolute black. <laughs> did, you, did you get some drugs? By this point, Rod was fully immersed in his own delusion. So powerful that his delusions rubbing off on other people. He believed he was a vampire, he believed he was immortal, and he believed he was all-powerful. The admiration of his followers, coupled with the constant stream of drugs through his system and the unhinged and chaotic nature of his upbringing, fueled his ever-present need for control and the need to be seen as greater than all. And then, Heather complains, not about Rod, oh no, no, never that, but about her parents. Oh no, are they gonna kill her parents? She complained about their rules, complained that they didn't understand her, and described her home as hell. Now, this isn't too uncommon for a stupid teenager, saying how they hate their parents and wish they were gone. Pretty standard stuff, but we all know where this is going. Rod took her words to heart, and so he got to work, coming up with a plan to make her happy, to make it so that they would all be together without any further interference. The date was November the 25th, 1996, only three days to Thanksgiving. And that night, the clan drove up to the Wendorf home, where they met and picked up Heather just down the street from her house. Rod and Howard got out of the car, and with that, Dana and Charity drove off, taking Heather to her boyfriend Jeremy Huber's house. Jeremy cared for Heather, even indulged her vampire fantasies, but even this seemed to be too much for him. Recounting his experiences, Jeremy said, There was one time when she told me that Rod believed he was some sort of reincarnated demon, that he was this high power that she had to obey. She said Rod put her under some hypnotic spell like hypnosis, and she went into some other world, and she was in demon form, and she loved it. Heather thought she was something from hell that slaughters people, like some sort of dragon creature. When Heather told him that she was going to leave for good, Jeremy tried to convince her to stay, that this didn't seem right, but she wouldn't hear it. After saying goodbye, the clan members made their way to the house of a mutual friend, Janine Leclerc. They asked her to come with him, but she refused outright. And with that, the three women started making their way out of Florida and in the direction of New Orleans, just as planned. As the girls drove away, Rod and Howard sneakily made their way into Heather's house through the unlocked garage. It was here that Rod spotted and picked up what would be the murder weapon. A crowbar. No sword, no battle axe, not very vampire-like Rod. Entering the home, they found that Richard was asleep on the couch in front of the TV and Ruth was making coffee in the kitchen. Jennifer was out of the house at the time. Lucky for her, because if she had been present, there's a good chance that she would have been a part of the horror that was to come. With no hesitation, the 16-year-old Roderick walked up to the sleeping Richard looked down on the loving husband and father, raised the crowbar and swung it down. Over and over again, he lifted the weapon and slammed it down on the poor man. Richard Wendorf never woke up during the attack. He never knew what hit him. He never knew that it was the words of his angry and unthinking young daughter that had cost him his life. Mm. Sort of. Also, Rod's a psycho and he's murdering him. Next, was Ruth. Entering the kitchen, Rod found her clutching a cup of coffee. Scared out of her wits, she demanded to know who he was and what he wanted. And when he approached without an answer, she simply flung the hot coffee right in his face. Smart woman. While the events of this attack are no doubt horrific, I must admit it brought a small smile to my face to think of Rod Ferrell shouting in anger and pain as the hot liquid cascaded down his face and burnt his skin. Sadly, that wasn't enough to let her escape, and Rod was on her. Knocking her down, he proceeded to viciously beat Ruth to death right there in her own kitchen. When questioned about it later, Rod claims that he hadn't planned on killing her at first, but after being scorched by the coffee, he'd changed his mind, and yeah, I don't believe it either. Now, I know what you must be thinking. What the hell was Howard doing during all of this? And the answer was absolutely nothing. As Rod was making his way through the house, killing Heather's parents in a brutal fashion, Howard simply stood there, watching it all unfold. It's as if Rod simply wanted someone else to witness his vile actions, someone to see just how evil he was, how powerful he was, as if to send Howard a message that he should never question him, or this could be his fate. 
Isn't Howard also going to go away for murder, though? There's this, um, at least in the UK, because it's about targeting gangs. It's like, so Howard commits a crime by, he commits the crime of burglary by going into this house, by breaking into this house, right? And then because he saw the po- foresaw the possibility of someone else committing grievous bodily harm, Rod, and then someone gets murdered, I believe in UK law, Howard would also be guilty of murder. And I think Americans have something similar, right? Let's see. The dark deed's done. Rod grabbed Richard's wallet, took out his Discover card, and the pair grabs the keys to the couple's Ford Explorer. With that, they drove off, leaving the house dark, quiet, and open for their eldest daughter to discover later on. Jesus. After meeting up with the girls, Rod told Charity and Dana about the success of the plan, then informed a reportedly shocked Heather that her parents were now dead. From there, they continued on as planned, making their way over to New Orleans, set up to live the rest of their vampiric life in peace. But the hourglass was already running out on the vampire clan. They just didn't know it yet. You're you're f***ed. Like, this is a sloppy crime, and you're going to go to prison forever. And maybe get executed. Let's see. Trial with a vampire. Jennifer Wendorf returned home at 10.30 that night. Entering the home, she undoubtedly was concerned and confused when she heard the TV going in the backgrounds, but not a peep from either of her parents. A few more steps into the house was all it took for her entire world to shatter completely. She found her father's body on the living room sofa, her mother's on the kitchen floor, both in pools of their own blood. She immediately dialed 911, and soon enough, the whole house was crawling with police. Richard had received a total of 22 wounds, including skull fractures, brain lacerations, a visible wound on the right side of his chest, as well as one other injury of note. Marked on Richard's body was a burn mark in the shape of a V, along with several dots and a straight line underneath. Rod, after bashing in Richard's skull, had actually taken the time to brand his victim with what he called his symbol, V for Visago, and each dot underneath symbolizing each individual member of his clan. Ruth had a number of defensive wounds as she had attempted to fight her attacker off. In total, she had been wounded 23 times, sustaining 16 wounds to her head. However, she did manage to take a piece of a murderer with her, as the police were able to recover DNA from underneath her fingernails. Tick tock, bitch. You're like... Rod. They're coming for you, Rod. And they're going to strap you into a gurney and fill you with drugs. I hope. As the investigation began, the big question on everyone's mind was this. Where on earth was Heather Wendorf? At the very beginning, after the bodies were discovered, it was initially believed that maybe she had been taken by the murderer. While not in the way they believed, the police weren't too far off the mark. Almost instantly, a note was found in the house written by Heather, explaining to her parents that she was running away with her friends and to not come looking for her. She even named all four of the clan members in the letter. With this revelation, it became clear to the police what had happened, and warrants were put out on Heather Wendorf, Rod Ferrell, Howard Anderson, Dana Cooper, and Charity Kesey, on November 27, 1996. But where exactly were they? That was the big question, and the police had no idea where to start. That is, of course, until the stupid criminals decided to be stupid. They're going to use that Discover card. They stole the Discover card and the car. Like, that's obviously what the police are going to be tracking immediately. They're going to be looking at all of that. The cameras on the highways and whatever, the license plates. Like, this is sloppy, sloppy crime that is going to be solved almost immediately, because you're all stupid. Soon after arriving in New Orleans, the vampire clan had run out of money. It was only a matter of time since they were on the run and unwilling to get actual jobs. So, well, what did they do? They called their mother for help, of course. No, I'm not joking. In an attempt to get more money, Charity Kesey reached out to her mother to help. She promised... 
even more stupid than using the Discover card. She probably believed that she would help her, that she would send money without asking too many questions. However, she was wrong. As soon as Jodie Remington had gotten off the phone with their daughter, she called the police, giving them all the details that she was able to get out of charity. The police now knew that they were in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and they informed the Baton Rouge Police Department. Moving quickly, they apprehended all five teens at a local Howard Johnson hotel, uh, where they had been staying. Stupid teens. Stupid criminals. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> to call a five-minutes dinner. When interrogated, Rod held back nothing. He went into vivid and bloody detail about his acts in the house and how he had brutally killed both Ruth and Richard without any regret or remorse. And on top of all that, the DNA recovered from under Ruth's fingernails. Yes, it was Rod's. With all the information gathered from the teens, the police and the district felt they had enough to move forward with the case against four of the five teenagers. Yes, you read that correctly. I said four. Heather Wendorf was never charged with any sort of crime linked to the clan or her parents' deaths. There were many out there who believed to this day that Heather and Rod conspired to kill her parents, that she was in on all of it, but that simply doesn't appear to be the case. While it would appear that she would have had to know something about what was about to happen, given that Rod and Howard left the car when she was first picked up, then that begs the question of why would she leave a note behind for them and her sister? Both Charity and Dana stated that Heather knew nothing of the murder plot, that she just believed they were all running away together. Two witnesses claimed to know that Heather was in on it, but they were both quickly disproven and discredited. Even Sandra, Rod's own mother, claimed to have heard Heather clearly asking Rod to kill her parents, but she recanted after failing a polygraph. Sandra is a piece of work, Jesus. In the end, no matter how deep the police looked, they simply couldn't find any solid evidence that Heather had any knowledge of the murders, so the grand jury refused to file charges against her, and she was eventually released. Totally scot-free. Um, I got a feeling Matt's more against this than I am. And kind of like, she's an edgy teenager, she didn't kill anyone. She didn't expect this, she, she didn't foresee that this guy would kill anyone. She just thought he was an edgy teenager too. And now her parents are dead. And she's probably got a weight of guilt about that. Rightly so. But also, I don't, I don't think she was committed any crimes here. As for the clan, well, each and every one of them pled guilty to the charges laid against them, each receiving different sentences for their crimes. Charity Kesey received a ten-and-a-half-year sentence and was released from prison in March 2006. Dana Cooper received seventeen-and-a-half years and was released in October 2011. Howard Scott Anderson, the second man in the house, was initially sentenced to life without the possibility of parole, but in 2018, that was reduced to 40 years, with credit for 22 years served, now being eligible for parole in 2031. Wow. Wow. So Howard, the guy in there, definitely also murderer, right? That's how, They must have got him on, like, first degree or homicide, first degree homicide, whatever you call it in America, because life without parole, for just watching, they got him on that gang law shit, right? And what of Rod? Well, he pled guilty along with his clanmates. His case was actually put in front of a jury. Not for a trial, mind you, but for sentencing. Oh, okay. I know what I'm thinking. Um, the jury, he's pled guilty. But they still have a jury to decide the sentence, if it's a death penalty case, right? If Simon and everyone else's minds have gone where I think they have, you're absolutely correct. Roderick Ferrell, at only 16 years of age, was sentenced to death. Oh my god, yeah, he's 16. I didn't think about that. Oh, you can't sentence someone who's 16 to death. You can't. You can't. It's not right. I know what he did. I know he's a piece of sh But you can't sentence him to death. He's a teenager. He's 16. At the time, he was the youngest ever recipient of the death penalty, and given that he stated there was a good chance he would have killed more people had he not been caught, I'm not really knocking the initial ruling. Life without parole. Ish. 16? I'd even give him the option of getting out of prison one day if he's, you know, reformed. However, as things go, 
His case and the sentence were looked into, and in 2005, his sentence was also reduced, though simply to life imprisonment without parole, and in 2020, he lost his final chance to reduce it even further. So yeah, no stake through the heart here, but sealed forever in a giant concrete coffin with guards and metal bars. Oh, that'll do just nicely. Wrap up. And as we close out our dark tale for today, a story of a group of teenagers who fell under the sway of a charismatic loner with a fetish for blood and fangs, Rod Farrell was a very damaged boy and is still a very damaged man, currently serving out his sentence in the Northwest Florida Reception Center Annex. From start to finish, his life was a misery, and it warped his mind to the point where he formed a little cult of his own and went on to murder the parents of one of its members. A very clear example of nurture over nature. He was a psychopath, and while he had made a lengthy and tearful apology to all the surviving members of his victim's family, it doesn't change the fact that his broken brain and dark fantasies ended the lives of two people who'd done absolutely nothing to deserve it. But what about Heather? Was she truly innocent and oblivious to all of it until it was too late, or was she a secret mastermind behind all of the bloodshed that night? I'll leave that debate up for you, but while the authorities weren't able to find enough evidence to formally charge her, that doesn't mean people didn't believe it. Well, they went in front of a grand jury, right? Which is like the jury who decide whether they should prosecute, just like regular-ass people. And they decided that there wasn't enough evidence. So... <sighs> um, I'm not, I'm not really down with that. At first, Jennifer, as well as the other members of her family, wanted nothing to do with her, though it seems as if they managed to reconcile in 2002. She even gave an interview in 2006 where it seems like her life has been rather normal, as she attended art school, married a local theatre and film producer, and lives in North Carolina. If she did have a part in her parents' death, she certainly did get away with it. But if she was, and is innocent of it all, I'm glad she was able to get her life together and is living happily. Yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm way more onto the latter side of things. Like, this sounds like a really unfortunate period in her life. I don't think she masterminded sh I think Rod's a psycho who murdered her parents. With all that said, it's time we once more take a moment to remember the victims of this terrible crime. Richard and Ruth Wendorf were a loving couple and a loving set of parents. They simply wanted their girls to be happy and safe. And because of the machinations of a deranged, vampiric teenager and the misguided actions of their own daughter, it cost them their lives. May both of them rest in peace, knowing they received justice at the end of the day. I don't know, there's no justice. They got killed. There's no justice. The guy's in prison. He's not dead. Now, as the darkness pulls back from us once more, I wish to give you a message. No matter how much you disagree with your parents, no matter how angry you get at them and think they're being unfair, they simply want what's best for you and for you to be happy. Words have power, and you never know if someone will take your venting the wrong way and go ahead and do something unforgivable. So, go give your mother and father a hug and a kiss and tell them that you love them, because you never know when you won't be able to any longer. And don't worry too much, vampires aren't real. Happy Halloween. Dismembered Appendices Just a quick personal note, since I have a feeling that Simon might have ragged on the role-playing games earlier. If not, I apologize. But aside from the obvious crazy people using it as an excuse, role-playing games are harmless fun and can be quite enjoyable. Yeah, I got no problem with it. I just don't I like if there was role-playing game that wasn't fantasy, I'd, I'd probably be into that. There probably are that I've played, I just can't think of them. I speak from personal experience, I've been an avid DD player and a DM dungeon master for a number of years now. It's a great activity in order to spend time with your friends, make some new friends, and it's a great outlet for creativity. Hell without D&D, my book probably would never have been written, or at least it would have turned out very differently. That said, Devil's Bane and The Curse of Decay is available on Amazon and Audible for all those interested. I know, shameless plug, sue me. You're welcome to have a shameless plug. Check it out. And uh, thank you for writing this. Thank you for being here. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, smash that like button, make sure you're subscribed, and I'll see you next time.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.